So our treatments for Alzheimer's disease currently are in fact a form of a vaccine. It's a passive vaccine, and we are going to, in the, uh, the developed world, have the availability of these disease-modifying therapies probably later this year for broad clinical use. But then it's going to require massive effort worldwide to eradicate Alzheimer's disease the way that we have eradicated polio or nearly eradicated polio. Lots and lots of clubs, lots and lots of individuals all of whom are passionate about finding a cure, all of whom believe that this might be the route to do that, uh, simply because we are looking at out-of-the-box thinkers as our research projects. Welcome to the podcast of Rotary Magazine, the official publication of Rotary International. I'm Steve Edwards. For nearly two decades, a longtime Rotary member in Sumter, South Carolina, named Roger Ackerman, watched his mother-in-law slowly lose herself to Alzheimer's. It's a disease whose reach is rapidly spreading. In fact, according to the Alzheimer's Association, an estimated 6.7 million Americans, aged 65 and older, are living with Alzheimer's. While Roger Ackerman's mother-in-law was suffering, he searched for research that could give him hope, but he found no answers. And it troubled him that so many other families were having the same experience. Roger Ackerman's Eureka moment came when a banker friend told him that eight to nine billion dollars in coins changed hands every day. He realized that pocket change could be the means to a cure. So Ackerman first explained his vision to his Rotary Club. The idea was simple, place a little blue bucket on a table and ask fellow members to toss their loose pocket change into the bucket at each meeting. It would be called the Coins for Alzheimer's Research Trust Fund, or the CART Fund, to support innovative research. Ackerman's club unanimously agreed to start a trial program in late 1995. Unfortunately, Ackerman died in 2018, but his legacy lives on. Today, more than 40 Rotary districts, mostly in North America, contribute. And as of last year, the donations had amounted to $11.2 million. So far, those dollars have funded 64 research grants. A bit later, we'll talk with Dr. James Law, who recounts his experience as a recipient of a CART Fund grant. He also shares the latest developments in Alzheimer's research with us. But first, I'm joined by Rod Funderburg. Rod's the board president of the CART Fund. He's also a member of the Rotary Club of Lake Mary Irmo, South Carolina. Rod, welcome to Rotary's podcast. Let me begin first by just asking you, how has Alzheimer's touched your life? Well, I've actually had two very dear friends pass away from Alzheimer's. In the early 80s, I was privileged to be an engineer responsible for a project team made up of engineers and designers to do capital projects within a manufacturing facility. And I was assigned an engineer who was about 60 years old. His name was Joe Bearden, and he had spent his career building industrial plants all over the world. And Joe impressed me immediately by his organizational skills. If you're building a plant, there's a million details you have to keep up with, and very few project engineers can actually do that and do it well, but Joe did. And I learned a great deal about engineering and about project management from him. He retired at 65, and at that point, he had no evidence of any kind of cognitive issues. However, at 70, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and at 76, he passed away. And I, I stayed in very close touch with he and his family, and it was devastating to me to watch the decline. It really was. 
And in fact, the last three years of his life, he was in a shell. He couldn't recognize family, couldn't talk to people, couldn't enjoy anything that he really wanted to do. And every time I'd visited here, his family, I walked away depressed. Another dear friend named uh, Jim Zoller, much later in my career, his Alzheimer's lasted a lengthy time, about 15 years between diagnosis and death. But for Jim, it changed his personality. It, it took him from a very genteel, quiet individual to an aggressive, abusive kind of person. That's a scary part to me because it's, it's not a consistent disease. There's not a ABCD kind of flavor for everybody, but it's always devastating to the family members as well as to the patient. And I just want to find something to help those families. That's kind of my passion. Fast forward a number of years till about 2000, I met Roger Ackman. And Roger began to talk about Alzheimer's and about this opportunity to raise money for research. And I just thought, wow, this is what I've been looking for. So that's kind of how I got started. Tell us a little bit more about Roger Ackerman. Who was he and why is he important to this story? Roger and his wife, Deanie, cared for her mother for a long time, about 15 years, while his mother-in-law had Alzheimer's. And he looked for a cure during that period of time and found none. <laughs> looked for people who were doing research to find a cure and found very few of those. Because in that, in that era, 1995, we, the public, we were interested in heart disease and cancer and HIV and, and those kinds of things. We weren't interested in Alzheimer's, but Roger was. And so we had this wonderful idea. Let's ask the Rotarians to come to their meeting and empty their pockets and purses of change. And so it was called Coins for Alzheimer's Research Trust. And in 1995, the bankers were telling Roger that a that billion dollars in coins changed hands every month. That is not the case today. <laughs> <laughs> but but back then it was. And so uh, he built this this wonderful opportunity. He just collected coins and his club promoted the idea. And before long, it was it was not just one club, but it was many, many clubs, many, many communities collecting money. And ever since then, we've given away grants that focus on Alzheimer's research. And that's kind of what the car fund's all about. Within a year, it was adopted by his club's district, District 7770 in South Carolina. And from there, it has spread. It initially spread to North Carolina and Georgia. And, and since then, it's moved to other parts of North America. It's currently, as you said, in 41 districts. Lots and lots of clubs, lots and lots of individuals, all of whom are passionate about finding a cure, all of whom believe that this might be the route to do that, uh, simply because we are looking at out-of-the-box thinkers as our research projects. CARTS is the acronym for COINS for Alzheimer's Research Trust. You're talking about pocket change here being thrown in a little blue bucket that's passed around at these meetings, right? That's, that's basically what we're talking about. Absolutely. And in 1995, it was a great idea because people had change in their pockets. We have progressed from that to the C standing for coins and currency and cash and credit cards and checks uh, <laughs> because nobody carries cash or, or coins anymore. In fact, we have an electronic portal now that you can donate through. But it's the same idea. A few dollars, a few a few coins can mount up when lots and lots of people participate. Rod, we talked about the 41 districts now that are part of the CART fund. What does it take, actually, to get other clubs to sign on, to get individual Rotarians engaged? What kind of efforts have you and others had to undertake over the years? The key is to find one person in a Rotary Club that's passionate about finding a cure. Uh, and to do that, we have to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one talking. We go to every rotary function that we can, where there'll be lots of folks, and we set up a display. Uh, we go to rotary clubs and do programs. We do one-on-one -on -one conversations. 
with the intent of finding one or two folks in a group who can represent us with their passion for finding a cure for Alzheimer's and with the hope that they then can spread the word to their community, to their circle of friends. You know, sometimes we, uh, we have to invite ourselves, but we go everywhere we possibly can to, to spread the word about what this disease does and what the CART Fund is intending to help do. That's all we do. There are a lot of organizations that do wonderful things for caregivers and, and education, but we don't. We, we focus completely on research. 100% of what is collected goes to research. There's nothing sliced off the top for administration. That's remarkable. But what else sets the CART Fund apart from other more traditional applications for funding in this space? What's unique about how those funds are administered and, and directed? We have a scientific review panel made up of three renowned researchers that wade through all the applications for us, and they tell us what they would put their money in based on how successful they believe the research will be. And so we, we Rotarians may not understand what the project is about, and so we rely on these researchers, these experts, to tell us this project will be very successful, this one probably will not. But my understanding too, Rod, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, is that even within that, the realm of projects you consider are decidedly more experimental. They're more on the cutting edge of where research may need to go, and there's not necessarily certainty that the scientists and researchers working on those projects are necessarily going to find gold at the end of the research rainbow, as it were, and that that's part of the strategy here to really uh, give funds that can be more flexibly applied to researchers that are really trying to advance either into new areas or to leading edges of Alzheimer's research. Why is that an important strategy for these dollars? You're absolutely correct, Steve. If you were a medical researcher and you had to find some money for your research, the three deep pockets you, you would logically go to, the National Institute of Health, NIH, uh, Department of Defense, DOD, or the pharmaceutical companies. But all three of those folks want you to have a proven hypothesis and that you are working on research to extend that proven hypothesis. And we believe uh, that an out-of-the-box thinker is more likely to find the key to this cure that we're looking for. And so we look for people who have not yet proven their hypothesis, give them a little bit of money to go prove their idea, and then they go to the deep pockets to get additional funding. Our limit right now is $300,000 per project, which is not a lot of money when you think about research, but it will get you started and get you to prove your idea so that you can then go to get additional funding from NIH or DOD or, or the pharmaceutical company. As I mentioned, it's been almost 30 years since that first blue bucket was passed around on a pilot basis. What impact has the CART Fund had over that time on our understanding of Alzheimer's and on any treatments or interventions around the disease? We believe that we've made huge strides. I picture Alzheimer's as a puzzle. And as you work puzzles, you know that the borders are easy. <laughs> And certain parts of the puzzles can be easy based on matching colors. And we've done all that for CART. We know a lot more than we ever did 30 years ago. But we're still missing a couple of significant pieces. And that's why we need to keep going forward and, and finding the additional pieces to actually find the cure. There are a lot of breakthroughs today that were not available even five years ago. But there's still some missing pieces. I'll give you an example. A drug recently was announced, which holds very, very good promise. The negative, however, is it needs to be taken very early to do any good. And so diagnosis becomes even more important now because of that breakthrough. 
And so we need to convince people that, that they need to be diagnosed, get away from this stigma and convince people to go get diagnosed so they can take advantage of things like this brand new drug. You mentioned stigma. What do you mean? A lot of folks look at Alzheimer's with a real big negative. Well, right now, it, not a lot of folks will accept the fact I have Alzheimer's or my father has Alzheimer's or my mother has Alzheimer's. They want to call it something else, something more palatable, senility, for instance, or or whatever. We need to get away from that and, and begin to understand that it is a dreaded disease and we need to address it. Rod, as you know, obviously, Rotary International has made significant commitments to public health issues around the globe. But why has Alzheimer's become a focus for Rotary clubs? We age, Steve, and we can't stop the aging process. We have wonderful longevity opportunities now that we didn't have five or 10 or 15 years ago. But as we get older, we are more likely to develop things like Alzheimer's and other dementia diseases. And so that means that a greater piece of the population will become enthralled in this disease as we go forward. And so we really need to find a cure. We have six and a half million people in the U.S. right now with Alzheimer's diagnosed, and that doesn't count those that have never been diagnosed. And that's only going to get larger and larger as we go forward. And so we're, we're really trying to find a cure because lots of us are going to need it. It's a genetic disease. And so we need to look forward in terms of how can we prevent this? How can we cure it once we get it? Every year, you and other Rotarians, and then obviously the research community that's involved in this effort under the umbrella of the CART Fund, gather in May for a couple of days. Take us through what happens at that gathering and, and what you're looking forward to when everyone gathers this May. We give away the money once a year in May. Uh, we collect it the previous 12 months, and we have applications from researchers that are that are waded through and, and determined which projects we'll fund. And then in May, we gather. This year, we'll be in Greenville, South Carolina. On Monday evening, we have a reception for the researchers, and everybody there can interact with the researchers in a very casual setting, can ask your questions of the researchers to try to figure out who they are, what their what their research is about, kind of glean some information from them, and kind of tap their expertise. And then on Tuesday, uh, we, we all gather in a, in a more formal setting, and each of the researchers gives a 20 to 30-minute presentation about their project, hopefully uh, in a very elementary kind of language, <laughs> so those of us who are not experts can understand it. And then we present them a check um, and, and uh, wish them the very best as they go forward. Now, we'll tell you that they don't get the whole thing at one time. They get a slice of the grant. And then eight months later, they give us a progress report, and they get another slice. And eight months later, they get another progress report, and they get another slice. And then eight months later, they give us a final report. And the final report has to be publishable to the public. We want to make sure that we share the information about their project because one person will not be the one to find the cure. It'll be a collaborative effort of lots and lots of researchers, and we want to make sure that the projects we fund are, are publicly available. Rod, you've obviously talked a bit about how this journey of yours started with a very personal experience. You certainly could have stopped at just throwing your pocket change into a blue bucket every so often, but you've gotten ever more involved. You're now president of the executive board of CART. Why do you do this work? What do you hope comes from it? 
it's a passion of mine. Uh, I've seen way too many people have family members affected by this disease. I've seen way too many people go into depression because of the diagnosis. I really want to want to make a difference. I talk to Rotary Clubs and other civic organizations all the time to try to instill in them the idea that this is not something you sweep under the rug. This is a, a real disease, a real problem that, that can be attacked if we all come together and do so. Well, Rod, thank you so much for the work you do and for the charge you're leading and for the conversation today. We, we so appreciate it. Well, I want to thank all the folks who are involved in this. It's not just me. It's, it's hundreds and hundreds of folks who have the passion who are helping us every single day. But thank you, Steve, for the opportunity. Rod Funderburk is president of the executive board of the CART Fund. CART is an acronym for COINS for Alzheimer's Research, a rotary effort that's raised nearly $12 million for such. He's also a member of the Rotary Club of Lake Mary, Irmo, and South Carolina. Rod, thanks again. Thank you. Our next guest is Dr. James La. He's the Associate Director and Clinical Core Leader of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Director of the Cognitive Neurology Program at Emory University. Dr. Law connected with Roger Ackerman in the early days of the CART Fund and was one of the first grant recipients. Dr. Law, thank you for joining us. I'd love to start off by asking you, just very simply, how would you actually define Alzheimer's disease? So that's a good starting point. And in fact, when I do presentations in the public, probably the single most common question we get is what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Alzheimer's is a very specific cause of progressive memory loss and dementia. Those are just symptoms. So you can have dementia symptoms from strokes. You can have dementia symptoms from other brain diseases that are not Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is defined by very specific changes abnormal changes that accumulate inside the brain and over time create the symptoms of memory loss, mild cognitive impairment, and progressive dementia. What have we learned over the past couple of decades as physicians and researchers and scientists have gone ever deeper into causes and risk factors and biological markers? What does the latest science tell us about the origins of Alzheimer's? One of the most critical advances, and this has really become well-established now, is this deep understanding that Alzheimer's disease is a chronic disease. So if you have heart disease, you don't all of a sudden wake up one day with a critical obstruction and, uh, and a heart attack. You wind up building up blockages um, over time that eventually gets to a point where there's a critical blockage, insufficient blood flow to the heart muscle, and then they have a heart attack. The Alzheimer's changes we now understand are evolving silently for up to 15 or 20 years before symptoms show up. So when we say Alzheimer's disease, we're talking about specific changes in the brain, but they may be present without causing any problems. In fact, about a third of people who die at advanced age with no problems have Alzheimer's disease in their brains. And so what we've learned is that there is this gradual buildup process of abnormal changes in the brain. We can detect those changes in living people, even healthy people. We can detect the presence of those changes using tools that have come along in the last couple of decades, including looking at different proteins in the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that surrounds your brain and spinal cord 
or using specialized scans, something called PET scans or positron emission tomography scans that allow us to actually detect the presence of Alzheimer's disease in living people at different stages of disease, including silent stages of disease. It's fascinating to think about, but I also can imagine if an individual is not experiencing anything that would be remotely symptomatic on its face or observable by loved ones or peers, that they wouldn't necessarily know or seek out any of that kind of early detection screening. So how does the medical community think about that question today? So, you know, you mentioned family history, um, and unfortunately, many of us have family history because it's such a common disease. And uh, sometimes, not infrequently, I will meet people or see patients in my clinical practice who are fine, just like you described, who are cognitively normal, but they're worried uh, because mom had Alzheimer's disease, and now I've gotten to the age, you know, mom was 72 when she started developing problems, and I just turned 72 yesterday very concerned. You know, I feel like my memory's slipping. I had a meeting. I couldn't remember this guy's name. That happens to a lot of us. I say, well, Steve, everything looks okay. But you say, well, I want you to do that spinal fluid test for me and tell me if I've got Alzheimer's disease or not. And my answer will be, no, I won't order it and you can't make me. And the reason for that is if that test comes back negative, that's great because the likelihood of you developing Alzheimer's symptoms in the next 10 years is virtually nil. On the other hand, if the test is positive, I don't know what to tell you because that presumably means that you're going to be at greater risk, but I can't yet predict um, when or if you're going to get sick. And not only that, there is no current treatment that's available to prevent disease. And that's going to change. I promise you that's going to change in the coming years. And once that changes, and I have the ability to either say, no, Steve, you're not going to get sick, or if you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick in five years, 10 years, or 20 years. And there's this drug that I can give you to delay the development of your symptoms for an additional five years, 10 years, or prevent you getting sick altogether. That day is coming, and it's not far off. And once that day comes, then you're going to come in and say, give me the damn test. And I'm going to say, okay, I'll do it. What makes you say that that day is coming? What, what are the promising developments and breakthroughs that have you optimistic at this moment? So the problem with Alzheimer's disease is that it's gradually progressive. So when I see somebody, you know, I prefer to diagnose patients uh, when they're in very early stage symptoms of Alzheimer's disease at a stage that we might describe as mild cognitive. And just to interrupt you really quickly, I want to differentiate. Yeah. You're talking about... Uh, not early on risk factors, but early on presence of symptoms. That's the distinction. Symptoms. Yes, yes. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, when I see patients and diagnose them at a stage of mild cognitive impairment, they may be still doing interviews on NPR or they may be practicing law or um, even medicine because they're functioning at such a high level. But objectively, based on cognitive tests, I can demonstrate that this individual has declined from what is normal for her or him. And at that stage, things are good. If we could just keep it there, people would be pretty happy. But the problem with Alzheimer's disease is over the course of five, 10 years, gradually that gets worse and worse and worse. And then you start getting into mild, moderate, and severe dementia and quality of life is terribly eroded. So for many years now, we've focused on something called the amyloid plaques, as sort of the centerpiece of our targeting for therapeutics, because the idea was if amyloid is playing a critical role in the disease, if we do something about that, 
we should be able to impact the disease or slow it down. And that's what I mean by disease-modifying therapies. So in 2021, and then in December of 2022, there were two drugs that were approved by the FDA as disease-modifying therapies. The first of those is, as a practical matter, not viable. But the second one is a drug called Lecanemab. It's going to be going by the trade name of Lecambi. And that drug has gotten accelerated approval, and, and in July, we expect it's going to get standard approval by FDA based on evidence of clinical benefit. And the clinical benefit that was demonstrated with Lecambi is that in patients with mild cognitive impairment or very mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, that drug slows down the progression during an 18-month period by about 25 to 30%. It doesn't stop people progressing. It doesn't reverse it, but it slows things down. And so if we're talking about a disease that on average may go from the very beginning to the very end over the course of about 10 to 15 years, what if we stretch that out to 15 to 20 years? What if we stretch that out from 20 to 25 years? Now, um, because most people who get the disease get it in their 70s and 80s, if I can stretch that out so that you don't reach the severe stages of disease for 20 years, you have a very good chance of dropping dead of something unrelated before you ever get to those horrible stages of disease. So that's the first stage of the battle. Logic would dictate if we take that further back and say, all right, we're going to use this approach to treat patients who have pathology but no symptoms, then that presumably is going to have a disease-modifying effect at an earlier stage will either delay the development of symptoms or possibly prevent the development of symptoms altogether. And that's where we're headed. And I'm more optimistic now than I was 20 years ago when I promised people that I would live to see the effective treatment and elimination of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, you have, in fact, before we started talking, you likened the momentum behind Alzheimer's research and treatment to Rotary International's efforts to eradicate polio. I mean, that that seems like a pretty bold statement, knowing how close the polio efforts are. What what makes you say that that we are at a similar moment potentially, or on the cusp of a similar moment with Alzheimer's? Yeah, so I I brought that up because you know obviously I'd been exposed to Rotary and the uh, the worldwide efforts against polio and the tremendous success of that and. And it is a bold sort of idea, but it's eminently doable. In fact, there are even some parallels, right? So how did um, Rotary International take this on and, uh, and deliver the elimination of polio? They did it by vaccinations. So our treatments for Alzheimer's disease currently are, in fact, a form of a vaccine. It's a passive vaccine. And we are going to, in the, uh, the developed world, have the availability of these disease-modifying therapies probably later this year for broad clinical use. And then the challenge is going to be, well, the burden of Alzheimer's disease in the coming decades is going to disproportionately hit the developing countries and middle-income countries. These advances are coming. These treatments and these preventions um, will be here. But then it's going to require massive effort worldwide to eradicate Alzheimer's disease the way that we have eradicated polio or nearly eradicated polio. And so it is a big vision. It's going to require a lot of partnership. And boy, would that be wonderful if Rotary International decided to take that on as a major initiative for Rotary. I think it would just be fabulous. It's remarkable to think about not only the, the possibilities, but the progress that's been made over 
the last several decades is millions upon millions of individuals and their families and their loved ones are still dealing very much with the acute and debilitating impact of Alzheimer's disease. So just to pivot from the research to your clinical practice, when someone receives an Alzheimer's diagnosis, what advice do you give both to that individual and to the loved ones in their lives? Yeah. So I'm really glad you asked that question. Many years ago, Alzheimer's surpassed cancer as the scariest word in the English language, especially for older adults. And it's for good reason. The first thing that, that we do is to actually take some time to explain what we mean. So if I can tell you, you have Alzheimer's disease, picture that comes into most patients' minds is uh, somebody who's in severe late stages of disease, debilitated, laid up in bed, doesn't recognize loved ones, can't manage anything for themselves. That's without question, that's a horrible picture, but that's the picture in late stage of disease. Some of my patients in very early stages of disease are functioning essentially normally, even though it's clear that they have symptoms of Alzheimer's. Even without any treatment, it's going to be many years before those individuals reach those late debilitating stages of disease. So that's the first thing I try to explain. The second thing I do is that lifestyle has an impact on both healthy brain aging and also can have an impact on the progression of degenerative brain diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. There are things related to diet and exercise, you know, mental activities, social engagement. These things can promote resiliency of our brains against the effects of disease. And in fact, we have a program that we've been doing to actually use these lifestyle factors as interventions. And I'm quite optimistic that uh, when the data are available to be analyzed, that we're going to find that promoting a good heart-healthy diet, encouraging and sustaining aerobic fitness programs, having people participate in stimulating and socially engaging activities, that those things may have an equal impact on slowing the progression of Alzheimer's as these initial disease-modifying therapies. One of the worst things about this diagnosis is people are devastated and, and they're dismayed but um, giving them a sense of optimism based on where we are and how rapidly things are progressing. And truth is, even if those changes are going to be here in time for you, the fact that they will be here in time for your children is a very positive and hopeful thing. And then the last thing that we do is we make sure to engage individuals with either counselors or social workers, both to provide continued education for patients and their caregivers so they know what to anticipate and how to deal with issues that may come along, but also to make sure you have discussions with your children about how you want different things handled. Just put all of those things in place ahead of time. And then the caregiver education support is critical. It is people who are primary caregiver for an individual living with dementia has a much higher rate of both physical and mental health issues, um, not just depression, but other stress-related conditions. And so in the state of Georgia, being the very forward-looking progressive state that we are, our state assembly actually um, five years, six years ago, approved an item in the state budget for us to develop a statewide network, both for early diagnostics and to provide um, uh, patient and caregiver support in the community to promote aging in place, and uh, but also to uh, provide early diagnosis so that as these disease-modifying therapies come along, we'll be in a better position to do that. 
One final question for you, Dr. Law. You obviously have dedicated so much of your life and career to not only treating those with Alzheimer's, but also researching the impacts uh, and possible interventions for this disease. Rotarians, of course, have also been invested in trying to find improved treatments and understand the causes and potential cures for Alzheimer's through the CART Fund. How did you come to be connected to this rotary effort in the first place? It was right when Roger Ackerman and his group in uh, South Carolina were starting the CART Fund. I knew nothing about it. Of course, it didn't exist until the late 90s. My friend and colleague and then mentor, Alan Levy, was contacted. And so he connected with Roger. We subsequently connected with Roger and the CART Fund. And they gave us a $100,000 grant to do some really exciting new area development of research. And I've been involved with Roger until his death and CART and Rotary ever since. And so it's been sort of a mutual admiration society dating back 20 years now. And I think it's just been a fantastic program. As a Duke guy, to some degree, it always pains me that my friend Roger Ackerman was a, a Tar Heel (laughs) But the CART program was one of the early ones that really stepped up. It has been incredibly important in catalyzing new research and also catalyzing new research in breakthrough areas. One of the very first CART awards was one that we received to uh, to do some advanced molecular technologies that were just evolving at the time. For me personally, that project changed the direction of my career and has continued to move it in a more translational direction. And this has been true for many CART recipients who have received grants that have allowed them to pursue high-risk, high-reward projects. And there is no replacement for that kind of funding. NIH is great. That's the bulk of our research funding, as it should be, and they've increased investment in Alzheimer's finally. But the, uh, the ability to have flexible dollars through resources and grants, like through CART, has really been an incredible accelerator uh, to, uh, to accelerate research in new areas and you know, development of new tools and new therapeutics. And so I can't tell you how much I CART. I love Roger. Well, we appreciate that and appreciate not only your time today, but all the essential work you're doing around Alzheimer's. And we wish you all the best in this continued effort to not only treat and improve, but also eradicate the debilitating effects of Alzheimer's. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Dr. James Law is Associate Director and Clinical Core Leader of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Director of the Cognitive Neurology Program at Emory University. Special thanks to both Rod and Dr. Law for speaking with us today. Also, the Alzheimer's Association helpline is worth noting. It accommodates more than 200 languages and is available around the clock 365 days a year at 800-272-3900. That's 800-272-3900. This free service offers confidential support and information to people living with dementia as well as caregivers and their families. And here's something worth noting. A recent study found that people who even make a single call to the helpline are better able to manage emotions, access resources, and engage in action planning. Once again, that hotline, 800-272-3900.
This episode of the Rotary Magazine podcast was produced by Kristen Morris and edited by Wen Wong with production by Mike Novak. The music in today's episode was composed by Yusu Kim. I'm Steve Edwards. Thanks for listening.